Hello and welcome to a very special Film Ireland podcast in partnership with Still Voices Film Festival, which runs from the 15th to the 19th of November in Ballymahan, County Longford. I'm Gemma Cray and I'm chatting with Birth Rebirth director Laura Moss about her really powerful film. Birth Rebirth will screen at 7pm on the 17th of November as part of the festival. We at Film Ireland are really sorry to hear this will be the last year of the festival, which was always warm, welcoming and absolute brilliant crack with a really banger of a programme every single year. So we'll see you there from the 15th to the 19th in Ballymahan. Thank you so much for um, chatting with us. Oh my God, what an incredible, oh, like visceral, but beautiful. The, the pacing is is gorgeous. It's so sensory, but like violent. And I think it just captures that experience of being a woman and and even even how it, it deals with the healthcare system and 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 how you know like you're kind of filtered through that and I, I don't know I just I just wanted to say I as a film fan oh my god I could not recommend this film more than anything that I've seen in the last long amount of time so thank you so much thank you thank you for having me and it's 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 lovely to hear that you know when you're working on a movie you you get kind of lost in the weeds and you're like, I hope it connects with someone. So I'm always very happy to hear this. I just I just want to go into a little bit about how you got to this point with your work. Like how did you kind of get to this as as um as a creative and and know these are the things that you want to to look at? Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, I I read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh, when I was a teenager and I was obsessed with it. I think not least because the other fiction I had read by women was, you know, classic fiction in, in high school was about marriage and manners and petticoats. And I just couldn't relate to it. And so when I read Frankenstein and I found out this very young woman wrote it, it, it was really inspiring to me. I think, you know, for, for a lot of my life, I've been trying to escape the category of woman. Um, and, you know, D- Victor Frankenstein, I mean, he's he's plagued, he's troubled, but in so many ways, that character feels so free. And I fuse that character in my mind with Mary Shelley herself, who has, you know, a really difficult history of loss and grief and miscarriage. And I thought, all right, what if this doctor were a woman? And of course, uh, when I really explored the reality of that possibility, my female Dr. Frankenstein was a lot less free. Um, You know, she had to deal with her body in order to do what she wanted to do with her mind. And that became, you know, a really deep thing for me to explore. When I made the film, I was in my late thirties. And so I feel like issues around sort of fertility and choosing whether or not to have children and reckoning with the aftermath of those choices, those, those themes sort of naturally uh, infused themselves into the movie just because it was what was going on in my life and in the life of, you know, the people closest to me. Um, and one thing I think that the film does so well in creating sort of almost like a triptych of different characters representing different like positions on motherhood where you have um, yeah, you have like these three very conflicting women and, and three different very specific journeys um, and, 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 and how about they're so different. No one is good. No one like you're watching it going, who's the antagonist? <laughs> <laughs> Who? <laughs> there's no, there's no clear um, 
like he was a villain because I think Judy's character, you you understand what she is doing and ever at any moment. You you even, you know, I don't want to get too much into the nitty-gritty of the film, but you like she's put in really a difficult situation and just has to do what she has to do. And and I think there's no one that doesn't identify with that as well. So yeah, just, no, I agree. I don't think there's an antagonist. I think the sort of like alienation of modern life is the antagonist, if that's that sounds pretentious, but I think it's true. And, you know, in many ways, the bond that Rose and Celie, our two protagonists, form with each other is sort of a bulwark against that isolation that happens in the medical system, that happens in New York City, that happens kind of to people everywhere now. And the theme is, you know, Rose and and Sally, Sally? Sorry. Celie. Celie, sorry. what they are sort of bonded in in their own way and and it's something that's revealed a lot kind of further down the line with rose is just loss and what 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 drives them is is that kind of is you know something outside of themselves that they're that they're really kind of like struggling to get a handle on and i think it's it's very beautiful the relationship and their chemistry that real pragmatic we have to kind of do what needs to be done relationship that they form and I'm just wondering how yourself and Brendan um you know when you're co-writing something like this how you develop characters that sort of deep and complex but like but there's like no clear exposition and everything is kind of handled so deftly well thanks um well so Brendan and I used to be married and then we got divorced and then we started working together as as writers uh so we have a very interesting relationship (laughs) um But I think, you know, we know each other super well. And one of the benefits of having co-writers, especially when you're writing a two-hander, is, you know, we sort of both identified or each identified primarily with a specific character. And I know for Brendan, that was Celie. And for me, that was Rose. And it did certainly it didn't mean that we neglected the other characters as writers, but I think kind of were the primary advocate for those characters uh, in the scenes. And, you know, in that way, you're sort of able to play out the scenes almost like an actor and really think about it um, kind of solely from that one perspective. So I love having a co-writer. I have no interest in writing by myself. It's too lonely. Very, it's very good to get the instant feedback and that instant hit rather than if you kind of have to leave things to before you Oof. can even see them half the time when you're working on something. So it's nice to have that and then have a second pair of eyes for the, the rest of the process must be handy. Just, exactly. Yeah. So, so when you're developing characters like this, one of the things that I think is really beautifully handled but never explicitly said is neurodiversity. And I'm just wondering, how do you kind of get a handle on that working with um, Marin and her depiction of Rose? Like, do, is this something that was decided, was found in the process? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I I have a lot of family uh, who are neurodiverse and and on the spectrum, as they say. And I think, you know, people tend to use the word on the spectrum sort of a little flippantly. And I really think of it as a spectrum. So I would say I'm on the neurotypical end of that spectrum, but I have a lot of qualities that could be read that way, which is, I think, partially why I identify so strongly with Rose from the beginning. Um It was important to me that I think Rose is not, she would have no use for a diagnosis, nor would she seek one out, Um, you know, and that's also true with her sexuality, you know, which is something that um, Marin and I discussed a little bit, that she's, that she's ace, that that she's asexual. But 
I don't think she'd know the term or care about it. Um, you know, and so that was something that I really wanted to, uh, you know, hand to Marin and say, look, there are these qualities. Uh, she's sense she's sensitive to touch. She's sensitive to noise. You know, she's she she has difficulty reading social cues. Uh, take that as you will. You know, I think for for Marin, she had some people close to her in her life where she felt like the characteristics of Rose. Uh, matched up and she was using them for inspiration but it was important to me to let Marin find uh, Rose for herself and not worry as much about sort of um, representing uh, neurodiversity on screen I think that as an actor that might have been um, that might have made her self-conscious or or be, be challenging for her yeah I, I think that's it as well that's we're at this new stage where you know it's like every black actor who's on screen you're you're just an actor you know you're representing a character who's doing a thing and like that you're you're not representing a whole society and I think when it gets to that like the real like when we when we kind of reach parity and equity and everything is kind of there it'll just be like you know a character happens to be neurodiverse and that's not the point or focus of the film it's just she just happens to do that. And I think it's done in a very kind of deft way. There's so much warmth to her as well. Like, you know, she presents very cold, but like the, the kind of the longer we spend with her, which I think is very truthful to, <laughs> to like, you know, how certain people are presenting. It takes a while to like break down the barriers, but she's actually kind of the most gentle and warm of any of the three women, even though mm -hmm. she presents coolly to her coworker and, you know, has like a very kind of distance when she's doing her work, but which I think is, is really warm. And she's, you know, like to the point where I love that, you know, she's vegan and she won't, she won't eat me. Cause she's like, Oh no, this is like, I'm so ethical. Like this is, this is a part of it. And, but this, this thing that I'm doing that may be considered by certain people to be like the worst thing in the world it's not it's it's for the greater good and it's to it's to heal at the end of the day so her like her motive is, is truly pure and she's willing to do whatever to herself to get it across the line and I think that's yeah I mean that's what we talked Marin and I talked about that a lot that like you know one of the things is you can readers cold especially at the beginning of the film a literal a little literal minded uh a little inflexible and I think um, we talked about two things. We talked about how Rose's intent is to be helpful. Like even in this early um, interaction that you referenced with a coworker where she's explaining to him how to take care of his child, you know, she's doing it to be helpful. It comes across a different way. But, um, you know, Marin's a, a brilliant actor and she never plays into what's obvious. Um, you know, the other thing we talked about was the incredible vulnerability of, of having a difficulty reading people. You know, if you don't know what someone's reaction to what you say is going to be, you, you know, putting up a wall makes a lot of sense. And like how difficult it is to truly be vulnerable and truly show your own feelings to the outside world. And in such a male dominated profession in such a kind of yeah. uh, difficult time. So one of the things as well, you were saying in, a, in another interview that this was something that you guys were developing um, in a lab prior to COVID, ready to shoot, and then COVID happened. <laughs> yeah. talk, talk a little bit about that. I, this is very know. disappointing. It's yeah, we're not. I'm just, we're not the only story that that you know. We're not the only film that was dealt with this, but uh, yeah, I, we were lucky enough to be chosen for the Sundance Screenwriters Lab in January of 2020. We got to go to Sundance 
and meet with these brilliant screenwriter advisors and develop the script. We met with Emily Gatto, um, an executive at Shudder, and she greenlit the movie. We were financed. We were ready to go. And in March 2020, everything shut down. Um, and it was tough because, you know, Shudder st stuck with us the whole time. It was months before any film production came back after COVID. And really only the higher budget films came back because the costs of keeping a film set COVID safe were so astronomical that for us, it would have been about half our budget. So we had to wait about two years until the COVID costs of our film reduced to the point where we could put as much of the money we had as we had on screen. Um, but yes, it was, a, I mean, as a filmmaker, it's, it's pretty maddening. I was sitting in my room, you know, storyboarding every shot of this movie, you know, thinking about what I was going to do. <laughs> and I think there was a point past which that was actually useful. Yeah, that, that you had a little bit more time to kind of stew in it and process it. Did that, what changed in that time? Because I mean, the world changed in that time as well. Would anything, would that have impacted the story? Yeah, I mean, the script didn't change a ton, uh, but I do think the emphasis of the story changed. You know, there, there are these sort of elements of grief and and wanting to get back a life that you had before that were always present in the story. But I think certainly for me, just as a person, but I think for an audience really hit differently than they would have pre-COVID. Um, and specifically, like, you know, I mean, it was meaningful or to us to to show the life of nurses and to shoot in hospitals and you know I, I think yeah it's 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 interesting to think about it because I don't know that any of us can quite retrieve our psyches from pre-2020 but you know I think the film lands differently for sure yeah 100 I think also the healthcare system being so frayed and so overspent and you know I think with Rose's issue with you know kind of processing it and dealing with that kind of tail end of it while um Celia is like unable to even manage because if if something goes wrong who's covering your shift like I think that's something that mm. that burnout post-covid like because you know everything shut down everyone got to go oh yeah this is what like quality of life feels like I get to see my family <laughs> again and then when everything kicked back into gear it went forward like a, a double speed and it doesn't seem to have shut down since so mm. I think that real isolation like because I think what this film did really really well in her story is address the guilt you know mm -hmm. like things happen it's not necessarily her fault you know but mm -hmm. you just feel that weight like and it's just done sort of beautifully but it's very very haunting oh thank you I mean yeah there's a lot of guilt in this film I mean certainly Celie's guilt as a mother Again, not her fault, but you know, as a parent, I'm, I'm not. I, I can't. I can't imagine. But you couldn't help but feel responsible if something happens to your child. And then, yeah, you know, what are what are their medical responsibilities? Um, you know, this film is in a lot of ways. I mean, spe I mean specifically about the U.S. medical system and and their attitude towards uh, people who are pregnant and birthing. Oh yeah, it's not great. It's not great. It's not great over here either. <laughs> so, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, about that physicality of going through the system, about how you're not really heard. I think another really good character is um uh, Emily, the pregnant woman who's, you know, and you can see her like struggling to be a people pleaser. Um I, I, like that it's just so truthful, like dealing with this kind of system and the 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 fuck ups of it, like trying to be like 
uh, 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 trying to be pleasant. And I thought, God, like that's mm. so like there there really are like the kind of three faces of of womanhood where, you know, you have to be successful. You have to be warm. You have to be pleasant. Otherwise, you know, who are you? And I don't know, just talk to me a little bit about um, even kind of weaving those narratives through the script. Like did this if if you were kind of working on this for it was six years in total. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Was there different drafts maybe where different people had different roles or how like it because it feels very like succinct when you're watching it? Thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there were many drafts, many, many, many drafts. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I felt the weight of when we talked about earlier about the weight of representation, especially about underrepresented people on film um. I felt a huge responsibility to show every type of birth on screen, <laughs> you know, just every type. And early drafts were kind of, I think, a little less focused in the sense that I was trying to really explain some things thematically about the world. Um, and I'm glad that that stuff exited the film. You know, I think ultimately one of the things that I learned at the Sundance Labs was really to... Um, trust that those themes that mean something to you will be infused into the story. That if you follow the needs of the characters and you know what they're pursuing through the journey of the film, that these other elements will reveal themselves. So the, the movie did get a lot slimmer and a lot more compact, even through the editing process. You know, there were several beats that I that were intellectually important to me that when we watched the film, we cut them because they had already happened. You know, we had already emotionally experienced that beat on screen. Like it's it's really powerful. And and I'm I'm just interested to yourself and Brendan, if you're you're at the stage where you're like, oh, it's it's not quite there. Like, how do you guys know when a draft is like finished? How do you guys put it down and come back to it? Like, I mean, if it had so many different iterations, like, you know, are you guys arguing, oh no, she was better at this? Like, how does that kind of creative relationship work? Yeah, I mean, I think we we tend to get to a place that we feel good about knowing it's not finished. And if we have the luxury of time, taking a few weeks off and then coming back and reading the script and really seeing, you know, how we feel about it with a little bit of distance. We also, we work with producer Molly Elfman, who's terrific. Um, and she, she gives notes. Uh, we solicit notes from friends who are screenwriters. So we really try to get, uh, you know, a round of feedback and then kind of dive back in with, like a specific set of passes that we want to do. But I think, you know, a screenplay is never finished and it's really about getting to the next stage. So for example, you know, we knew we wanted to send the script to Marin Ireland uh, to play the role of Rose. So we did a pass on the script at that point to make sure that her character was as strong as possible. And we did the same thing before we went to Judy, you know, which is not to say that we neglected those characters in other passes, but like, you know, a script is so overwhelming that I feel like that's what I've learned over the years is to work in passes and, and trying to target specific areas one at a time. Brilliant. And then and then keep it in theme, because that's something that's so strong is like theme and how everything links back to it. Um, tell me as well about maybe raising the finance. Like I know this is like the moment this is mid, is it considered mid budget? I, I mean, I'd say it's it's an indie. It's a mid-budget indie. Yeah. It's a low-budget film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's I mean, it's it's a tricky thing. We, 
you know, it's a horror film or it's horror adjacent, as I like to call it. So we knew from the beginning that we were targeting specific companies that specialized in this genre um, that also made films at the sort of sub $5 million level, because there are there are companies that are so large that they won't touch films this small. Um, we met with quite a few. We had, you know, um, uh, earlier we were attached to another financier, but that we were kind of weren't creatively aligned and it didn't work out. So we came into the Sundance Labs with zero financing. And as I mentioned, Emily, uh, who works at Shutter, you know, just fell for the film. Um, and it was wonderful. You know, we had this great meeting. She really loved the project. She she wanted to make the same kind of movie that I wanted to make. You know, it was very clear. Um, and I think it just also coincided uh, with a moment in time that Shudder, who, you know, it's the horror streamer that um, tends to acquire a lot of films after they've been made, was really making a big stake step into producing films on their own. So, so it was the COVID timing was unfortunate, but the timing with Shudder was very fortunate. And, you know, as a filmmaker, you know, I'm sure the question is always how the hell do you connect with these financiers? And it's really difficult. And I, I would say that for us, the Sundance Labs, the visibility that we got from the Sundance Labs probably was the reason that Shudder wanted to meet with us in the first place. It's interesting to see that, like, and it's good to see, again, such strong woman-led content get out there. And I think that's what horror, all the best horror really like it's so viscerally explores like a deeply ingrained truth and I think this yes. is something that really really does that um, and and speaking of visceral the the gore in it is spectacular now I've, I saw you had a lot of um, production design credits is this something that you you knew you'd really get those visuals and hammer at home then yeah, I mean, this is something that I'm really passionate about. I, you know, briefly before I worked in film production, which is what I've really been doing most of my adult life, uh, I worked as an EMT. Um, so I had sort of first-hand experience seeing uh, this kind of stuff in the medical field. Um, and then I got a job as an assistant to a special effects artist in New York, a prosthetic makeup artist. So I learned a little bit about uh, prosthetic and practical special effects. Um, I'm a huge George Romero fan and famously Tom Savini, uh, you know, his effects artist who was an army medic in Vietnam. Uh, you know, I, I, I devoured everything written about how he achieved his effects. Um, so, yeah, so it's just partially it's just my sensibility. I really wanted the practical effects to be right on this one. Um, and, and I tend to not love digital effects. Um, and then, yeah, I, I worked with Emily Ryan, who's a pathologist at Stanford. She's a, you know, real doctor and she got a kick out of this movie. So she decided to take some time off and be our onset medical advisor. And her with with Lisa Forrest, our, our effects artist, just created this starkly real work um, that I think really elevates the film. You know, Frankenstein is, a, is an out there, you know, reanimation, I, sh I should say, conquering death is a pretty lofty out there premise. And I think in order to keep the audience engaged, I wanted to make sure that the medical stuff felt as grounded as possible. And and another thing that I thought really adds to that texture is the um the the sound effects. It's so uh mm. powerful and unique. So this is Ariel Marx. Ariel Marks was our composer. Brian Parker was our sound supervisor. Sound and my brother, Doug Moss, was our sound designer. So we had a pretty amazing team. Uh, and Ariel is a brilliant composer. I've worked with her uh, a lot in the past. 
Um, but they all worked collaboratively, collaboratively together to make sure that the sound design and the score were kind of seamlessly intertwined. That's why it's a very cinematic um, piece. Like it's it's so uh, like I do think it's something that really suits. I know kind of people are like, oh, mid-level f- films, you save like your Marvel. And I was like, actually, it's such a kind of attack on the senses like mm. that it's definitely one I would heartily recommend any horror films go see that it's um going to be screening in still voices I believe so I I hate to not confirm that but I'm not in charge and, of course uh I'm, I'm really I will I will be at still voices <laughs> as a yes. guest and I'm really hoping that uh birth rebirth will be screening there as well what has the response been to the to the film being seen because it's it's very powerful and it does tackle a lot of things that are close to home for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting, as you say, like, you know, there were reactions I was expecting and then reactions that I wasn't expecting as much. You know, I've heard from a lot of uh, people who have experienced childbirth, specifically people who have experienced traumatic C-sections, um, you know, w- women and others who feel who struggle to be believed uh, by their doctors when they come in with a medical issue. Um, and that, and that's not just women, uh, you know, that's certainly trans and non-binary folks. And in fact, a friend of mine, who's a man uh, recently saw the film and remarked about, you know, he, he has this chronic medical issue that, that he's not really being believed about and, and felt really strongly that this film spoke to that. So I really love that, that it's reached people. I think, outside of maybe the most obvious demographics. Um, you know, I, I, as a filmmaker, you just hope it reaches anyone. <laughs> and so, you know, I, um, that's my favorite thing is to sort of have conversations with folks after the film about what it means to them. With regards to, to delving down into theme and getting to, to something so, something so deep, but in, in such a kind of watchable way, have you mm-hmm. thought about, say, things that or you're, I presume it has to be something you're so deeply passionate about that you're going to spend six years and like financial disappointment to like yeah. stick with it and all those drafts. What would be something now that you might, I presume something like this will open a lot of doors with regards to, you know, your second feature with a, with a bit more scope to explore something like a, like a bigger world. I'm just thinking what, would be your next move or what even themes would you like to investigate or worlds that you'd like to look into? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, Brendan and I had written another feature before this uh, that has not yet been produced called Gordon. It, um, it, as you say, was larger in scope. And for a first time feature filmmaker, it became clear to me very early on that it was going to be impossible to raise the financing for this as my first movie. Um, but it also explores themes that I think I, I can chew on for six or 12 or 24 years, depending on how long it takes to make the next movie. Um, it's about a, a young boy who in, in the early 60s accidentally, or may or may not have accidentally set his sister on fire uh, and is diagnosed as a, at a young age as a sociopath. And then kind of graduates into the world as an adult, uh, terrified of dating because he's afraid that his sexual or romantic impulses will be confused in his own mind with violent ones. And really what the film is about uh, is labeling and diagnosis and also kind of what a culture that, that cuts up women does to the male psyche. Um, So this is like, I think 
there's so much in there that I don't know and that I want to learn and that I want to dig into. But I also think that, you know, I, I, I'm now and better able to articulate the themes of birth rebirth after having made it. And I think that's probably also true for this next one. I just kind of know that there's enough in there that's that's chewy to me, but I'm sure there's a lot more in there that I'm I'm dealing with subconsciously that I don't even know about. And you were saying it's like it almost sounds as well if it's so character driven. Is that a could it be a series? Like is it, is it that kind of mm-hmm. like there? Or do you go oh no no this is where I this is the a very closed shot. Yeah, I mean that's it's, it's a great question. I. I don't think that way. I, you know, like I, and, and in fact, I'm quite uh, fond of the sort of UK model of TV series where they're like six episodes, two seasons, and then done, you know, because I like to think sort of in a more closed way about story. Um, in the US, you tend to pitch a series with the hope that it goes on for 27 seasons. And, you know, I find that those stories are not as tightly written or as interesting to me. Um, that's a huge generalization, but I, yeah, as a writer, I tend to think about things in, within like a feature arc. Um, I, I would want to learn about TV and kind of that mentality, but I think I would learn about it as a student. Like hopefully someone brings me on board to direct a pilot sometime and I can observe it from the outside. But didn't you direct series? Did you? I, you I directed to... a spec pilot, uh, actually starring Karen Gillan and uh, John Bass, Jillian Bell, a great uh, Nick Kocher, who is a comedy writer, uh, wrote it. Uh, so I did. That was. Uh, but it was it was uh, meant to be for an anthology comedy sci-fi series. Oh, so it is a completely so, closed. Exactly. So in that sense, it was really a closed story. And I did not really have to think as a director about what the what the 17 season arc of this story would look like. <laughs> That's so true. Um, yeah. and and you also have um, like you've kind of done a good bit of shorts coming up to this. How important are shorts in cutting your teeth and and finding your voice? Like, did you sort of was that how you were learning along the way, or was this you know like are they kind of spec projects to sell other items? What's your position? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I went to graduate film school, uh, and one of the benefits of NYU's grad program is they make you. I think I made seven shorts over three years, uh, and I, and I do think the best way to learn is by doing, um, and especially maybe in a in a cloistered environment, academic environment where you can fail and not show anyone your short. That's not very good, you know. Um, so there's that benefit, but uh, they're not they're not free. They're not cheap, uh, and so I think. It's also totally valid to think about shorts in a more targeted way. Is this a proof of concept for a feature? Because I know that when I've gone around with some screenplays before I had a a really successful short, you know, people would say, oh, this is nice. You know, it's very execution dependent. Uh, I'm not sure if you could direct it, Uh, you know, so I think. One of my goals as a filmmaker, as in the six years I was trying to get this made, was to create sort of an undeniable body of work in the form of shorts that I could afford to make so that when someone came and asked if I was qualified to direct the feature, I could throw all of that material at them. Um, But I I think they're fun and and, and I, I like watching shorts. I think they're valuable in and of themselves. But economically, you know, they're, you're not going to make a living doing them, at least in the U.S. I, I did meet some European filmmakers that seem to be financed <laughs> by by uh, by the government, which I'm so jealous of. Uh, our but, our local know. our local governments <laughs> or our county councils fund them. Like, you yeah. only get, like, 
maybe 10 to 15 grand to make like a uh-huh. shorter. So they have to be very, very, very small. Contained. Um, yeah. But like, yeah, yeah, our local, like you would apply to your local, like your local office down the way and you'd be like, here's uh, some money, please. For my short it's film. amazing. I'm, I'm going to film it in that park and I'll go, okay, here's some money. <laughs> so I love it. I love it because I mean, it really is the only way to learn um, is to, is to do it. Uh, you know, film sets are so intimidating. And I think, you know, once you look at, the process and see that they're done one shot at a time, you know, you can start to believe in yourself and your ability to helm a feature. That's just fabulous. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Oh my God. What a, what a brilliant film. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we'll see you in. We'll, yeah. I'll see you at still voices in uh, November. Thank you so much. Enjoy and safe travel. 